Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, everybody. Today's guest is Michael Blumenfield, a psychiatrist with four decades of experience, a former tenured professor of psychiatry, medicine, and surgery from New York Medical College, former president of the American Psychiatry Association, and now author of the book Shrink Talk. We do talk about mental problems this episode, but seeing as this is a psychiatry episode, I do feel like people are expecting to hear about those topics. We also discuss everything from the most common mental illnesses to what really killed President Lyndon Johnson. Hint, it was another president! Let's pretend we're zombies and get up in those brains! Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Blumenfield. Thank you for having me here. Yes, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been a psychiatrist for many years. I'm a past professor of psychiatry and uh, actually of psychiatry, medicine, and surgery at New York Medical College, a past president of the Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry, past speaker of the Assembly of of the American Psychiatric Association, and now currently practicing in Los Angeles and the author of a new book called Shrink Talk. Shrink Talk. All right. Awesome. Well, you definitely have quite a lengthy history here and quite an impressive resume, if I do say so. What drew you to psychiatry originally? Oh, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, and as a psychiatrist, I have to go into the into the dynamics of it. Okay. Sure. All right. So My father wanted me to be a doctor. I wanted to be a sportscaster. Okay. And I, I, uh, at college, I broadcasted the football and basketball games. And I had a show, maybe something like yours, called Face the Mic, in which I interviewed people. And I was uh, kind of resisting going to medical school. And then there was an elective to work with a graduate student. Uh, planting electrodes into the brain of a cat and watching the cat's behavior. And it fascinated me that we could actually see and predict in advance what the cat was going to do by looking at their brain waves. And I said, this is fascinating. I'd like to study this more. I, I think I'll become a neurologist and I'll go to medical school. So then I go to medical school with the plan to be a neurologist. And along the way, I was uh, taught by some fascinating psychiatrists who uh, really explored the mind and the uh, psychodynamics of the mind. And uh, even starting back with Sigmund Freud and and the more modern uh, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists, as well as the uh, tremendous developments with uh, new medications for some of the more serious psychiatric disorders. And I was very comfortably and excited going into the field of psychiatry. So I did complete my medical school and went on to become a psychiatrist. And that's the relatively long version of of your question. (laughs) No, that wasn't so long. So what is the schooling like? You know, you said you kind of switched majors in the middle of that to go to med school. But if somebody today was trying to go become a psychiatrist, what are they looking at in terms of schooling? Well, obviously, you need to, to go to, to undergraduate, to college. 
And uh, while it's always good to get a broad education, you need to include basically the pre-med courses in the, that's, you know, biology and chemistry and, and uh, you know, things like that, uh, in addition to everything else. And, you know, I certainly favor being a well-rounded person, but you need to have the basic pre-med courses and do relatively well to, to get accepted into medical school. And then once you get out of medical school, is this like what you see with other doctors where you have like an internship period? Yes, abs- absolutely. You, you have a, uh, an internship year. In fact, I, was, I went to medical school in New York and I, uh, I chose to go out to the West Coast for my internship. I interned it in San Francisco. And then as I knew I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So I, I came back to New York and took a residency, which is usually a three-year residency in, in psychiatry. And then I was uh, interested a great deal in the mind, body, and, and psychoanalysis. So I, did, I had my own analysis and studied psychoanalysis and took a fellowship in psychosomatic medicine. And there's many paths that you can follow along the way. And there, you then begin to have all sorts of interesting experiences, depending on uh, your inclination, and uh, you can combine it with private practice or be in full-time practice or uh, teach or uh, be involved in some of the political aspects of mental health, and, and, you, uh, and you're off and running. Interesting. Are there different specialties inside of psychiatry? Oh, yes, very, very much so. Even though uh, a psychiatrist can can cover many bases, one psychiatrist can cover many bases, can do therapy and also prescribe medication. There are some psychiatrists who who specialize in in uh, schizophrenia or, uh, or or might be, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, interested in psychodynamics and psychoanalytic work. You know, there there are all, all many variations that you can that you can go into and and touch upon during your career. So what is psychodynamics? Psychodynamics are really the the understanding of behavior uh, from from the early on. In other words, our early experiences will influence our feelings, emotions, and behavior as we, uh, when we're older. You know, if you were raised with uh, just one parent, that's going to influence you in certain ways. If you were treated badly uh, growing up or if you had a traumatic experience, that's going to influence your behavior later on. And so somebody finds themselves in conflict and not getting along in the world and in psychological pain, and they decide to see a psychiatrist, a simple pill isn't going to make them better. It's going to need to be an exploration of, of their development of their personality and of their psychological makeup to really understand them. That's basically psychodynamics. And it, it gets very, um, uh, very complicated and interesting. For instance, there, there's something called transference. In other words, when you're seeing a patient on a regular basis, the patient develops certain feelings about you, the psychiatrist, and uh, they may be, they may get angry at you. They may feel you're the greatest person in the world. Uh, they may fall in love with you. They may, they may hate you. If we have a good working relationship with the patient, 
you can understand those feelings, those dynamics and where they come from and how they not only show themselves in the doctor-patient relationship, but show themselves in, in, the, in the patient's relationships with other people. And therefore, you're able to uh, help them gain insight and, and hopefully function and feel much better in the future. Yeah, hopefully. Is there a crossover or is it like a step up when people talk about like, I'm going to therapy and they're seeing a counselor? Is that different fundamentally than seeing a psychiatrist? It, yes, of course, because it's seeing a, a different person from with a different uh, training. Now, there are psychologists and uh, social workers who get specific training in, in therapy. Um, in California, there's, uh, you can get a master's degree in, 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 uh, in psychology. You can get a doctorate degree in psychology. You can a bachelor's and MFT and all sorts of degrees where you've studied psychotherapy and, and may be quite helpful and effective in, in doing some of the talking therapy. Only a psychiatrist or a physician can prescribe medications. And so psychiatrists have the option to only prescribe medications and leave the therapy to, to a, a non-psychiatrist or many psychiatrists, such as myself, can do both. Well, not can do both, do do both. Uh, any psychiatrist can do both, but some choose not to do both. Interesting. So what are the most What's probably the most common thing that you see for patients coming to you? Well, that's a, a hard question. Uh, I, I suppose um, anxiety and depression would probably be the common symptoms because those are the symptoms that hurt. And you have to hurt to to want to get help. For example, people can have problems. Uh, or their personality can be uh, can be problematic. For example, somebody might have a strong narcissistic personality, meaning that they are very self-centered and see the world as their own needs and find it difficult to understand and feel empathy for other people, etc. Now, that usually doesn't lead somebody to want to go see a therapist, which is the problem, but sometimes, and uh, they come for other reasons, and that aspect of their personality shows itself in the therapy, and, and, the, and we, the therapist and the patient try to deal with that aspect of things. There, there are also, um, you're being interested in what, what happens in therapies. One of the things that I discuss in my book called Shrink Talk are ethical dilemmas that occur. For instance, um, from time to time, there becomes a, a, a difficult question is what to do. And for instance, therapy is in order to be uh, effective, in order to, uh, to gain the trust of the patient, it has to be confidential. Uh, that's a very important thing. So as I, as I was saying, there, there, there can be ethical dilemmas that occur. For instance, we... We know that the therapy, in order to be effective, has to be, has to be confidential. It has to be trust. I'll give an example of, a, of where the dilemma comes. A patient comes to me. I'm seeing a, a woman in therapy. And she says, you know, 
I did some babysitting for my dentist, Dr. Schmidlowitz. And um, while I was babysitting with this, um, this small kid, he really uh, got out of hand. And I lost my temper and I slapped him across the face and his face got all red and I put some ice on it. I'll never do that again. Now, in many states, if a physician knows about child abuse, he or she is bound to report them. And of course, as I said before, the, the therapy is founded on confidentiality. So what is the therapist to do in that case? I discussed several ethical dilemmas such as this one in my book. And because I think that, uh, that it's important that people understand these dilemmas and how potential ways to deal with them. Should the psychiatrist say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to report you to the police because you just told me about child abuse? Should the psychiatrist say, promise never to do it again and I won't report you? Should the psychiatrist say, um, let's, uh, let's agree that you will not babysit in the foreseeable future and we'll try to work on this issue? The different people have different uh, uh, views on this now. You know, and I could tell many other cases, but I just give you the sense of the, the struggle, the, the complexity sometimes of, of being a therapist. And there are all sorts of legal aspects of things. For example, um, there was a famous case in California called the Tarasov case. You know, no reason that you should have heard of it or but any of the professionals who might be listening who are from California know well, well know the case. And it was basically a, a therapist who was treating uh, a college student. And the patient uh, was very angry and uh, stormed out of the office, basically saying they were out to get this, this young woman. And um, therapist uh, felt it was really dangerous and called the police. And uh, there was a terrible uh, crime committed, uh, you know. And but and the psychiatrist felt that they had done the right thing by uh, calling the police. However, after a long, complicated legal battle going through the courts, it was decided that the therapist should have not only called the police, but since he knew the name of and who the person was who was the object of the intended assault, he should have notified that person also, or been sure that the police would notify that person. And that became the precedent, and it's called the Tarasov precedent. So there, there, that's just one little aspect of of interesting aspects of psychiatry that I that I discussed in, in the book because I know people are are interested in these kind of things and uh, and it's important that people be educated about about uh, psychiatry and mental health at least that's what I feel. Yeah, that's an interesting example, and obviously it set its own precedent that not only do you need to you know try and stop the party that wants to either hurt themselves or someone else, which I think is probably pretty understood you know most people know hey if you you tell someone explicitly you're going to hurt yourself or someone else like there's a a duty to report that but it's interesting to hear you know you also have this duty to inform the person that might be 
you know, the, the object of their malice. So to right. Speak. And, and just to be clear uh, that in, in different States, the law has different, uh, different aspects of it, you know, so it, it, each state has a different interpretation of the Tarasov uh, precedent. You know, uh, suicide obviously is a major issue that any kind of therapist has to be aware of and and deal with. You know, I, I, whenever I talk about this or think about it, I, I remember many years ago, I was walk, taking a walk across the Golden Gate Bridge with my granddaughter, who was, I don't know, I maybe seven or eight, she was learning to read and very aware of things. And we're walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, which is a beautiful opportunity to do. But every, um, I don't know, certain distance, there's a telephone and there's a sign on the telephone. And the sign says basically, if you are depressed and feeling suicidal, call the pick up the phone and call the suicide hotline. Because as you may know, there's been a, a tremendous number of suicides over the years of people jumping off bridges and particularly the Golden Gate Bridge, more than any other bridge in the United States. And that's why they're they now have a, a special barrier and and when we were walking across, they had the phone and I had to explain to my young granddaughter why they were having these suicide phones every certain certain feet. So these are um, interesting things that, that I've encountered over the years. I've even had over the years, and again, I mentioned in my book, two interactions with the U.S. presidents that uh, obviously might interest you. So, you know, when you've been around a while, different things happen. And uh, it's been a very uh, interesting career. And uh, I'm fortunate that I'm able to still continue doing things. Yeah. I mean, no, uh, no spoilers that people will go pick up the book. But when you said two presidents, I'm immediately curious. Okay, sure. I'm glad to, to tell them. And uh, there's more stories in the book, Shrink Talk. What, one of them was... Well, I'll tell you how the story developed. I was on an airplane with my wife and we were flying back uh, from one place to another. And uh, we were reading the newspaper as the plane was about to take off. And there were two big stories. And one story said, Richard Nixon announces the end of the war in Vietnam. And the other story says, Lyndon Johnson died at his ranch in Texas. Now, if you know the history, the war in Vietnam was Lyndon Johnson's biggest failure. He was not able to end the war in Vietnam, and that was his, his biggest failure in life. And so my wife turns to me and says, gee, it's too bad that Johnson didn't live to, to see about the end of the war in Vietnam. And I said, you know, I'll bet you that Nixon called him and told him, and that's what killed him. That's what killed Johnson. So I then go back to New York and I'm teaching psychosomatic medicine, among other things, mind body. And I use that as an example. You know, now obviously I don't know, but I'm using that as an example. And then somebody very close to me says, 
You know, you're always spouting off on how um, this is an example of the mind body and a fatal heart attack. Why don't you ask Nixon if he called him? So I said, well, how can I do that? It's, well, by then Nixon was disgraced and out of office living in New Jersey. And she said, this was a super librarian type person. She said, I'll get you, uh, I'll get you Nixon's address. So I wrote Nixon a letter. And I said, I'm a psychiatrist, blah, blah, blah. And he died the day before. And I always thought that you must have called him and that's what killed him. And Nixon writes me back a letter, dear Dr. Bloomfield. And he said a lot of other things in the letter that were interesting, but he did say, yes, he had Haldeman, who was his number one person, call Johnson. And he agrees with me. That's what killed him. Oh, wow. And that's an incredible, like the way that something can psychologically impact you in such a way that it could kill you. Well, it's very right. interesting. And, and very often you know, over the years when I, I've seen people, you know, have heart attacks and when, you know, they call me to see him in the hospital because he's very depressed. And uh, I find out that that there was a seminal event that occurred just before the, the serious heart attack. And that, that was not unusual at all. And, you know, not only my experience, but it's in the literature and it's well known. And that's the mind body, you know, example, you know, that's certainly one of the things. Now, the, the, if you want to hear another story also in, in the book, was my interaction with, uh, with another president. And I'll tell you how that came about. I, I met a man whose um, son died during the Afghan died in Afghanistan during the war. He was a soldier and he died in Afghanistan. And his body was shipped back with a flag. And it was, you know, obviously a very sad event. But he never received a letter of condolence from President Obama. And the key factor was that this soldier that died in Afghanistan did not die from a bullet, but died from suicide. And uh, obviously the suicide um, may very well have come from his combat experiences and what he experienced, etc. It seemed wrong that the president did not acknowledge his death as a result of his service in the military. So at the time, I was speaker of the assembly, you know, the American of the American Psychiatric Association. The American Psychiatric Association, like many uh, national organizations, has a uh, has like a congress where representatives from different areas of the country get together in a national meeting in a congress meeting, you know, a couple of times a year. And I and the leader is a, the speaker, and I was the speaker of the assembly. So uh, I introduced a resolution that the American Psychiatric Association would ask President Obama to reconsider his policy. And uh, we passed the resolution and it went to the Board of Trustees and they voted to pass it. And we sent it to uh, President Obama and he changed his policy. Good. So, you know, interesting things happen along the way when you've been around a while. 
yes, that is for sure. Especially when you have that uh, kind of history that you've had where it's like the, the APA I think is so well known that I recognize it by just those three letters. So there's definitely something to that. And in that, in this time that you've had, have you found that there's any one, you know, ailment or disorder or however you'd like to refer to them that is the most difficult to treat for any reason or another? Well, I think, I, I think if I had to make a list at the top of the list would be something I mentioned a little earlier, and that is the narcissistic personality. Because there, you know, whereas basically is I am the greatest and the person is usually not feeling there's anything wrong with them. It's really everything wrong with everybody else and everything wrong with the world. So number one, that person often does not come into therapy. And when they do come into therapy, it's usually for another reason. And one has to sort of back end into that to try to help them understand how this aspect of their personality uh, affects their life and their interaction with other people and, and maybe a problem. Yeah. Interesting. You know, obviously with some of these cases, you know, there's a need to dig kind of into the psychology behind it. And then in some cases there is a prescription element, like you mentioned, uh, psychiatrists are the, have the ability to write a prescription, whereas your standard you know, therapist does not. Is there kind of like a go-to, like if this is the, the problem, then you give X medication. Is there a, a system like that that you use? Well, one, one certainly has to make, uh, has to try to make the distinction between where one has a, uh, a usually what might be a biological depression or, and uh, one that's, that might respond to medication and one that uh, is due to uh, conflictual issues that, that, would, um, that would best respond to psychotherapy. Now, it is very possible that one can be due to conflictual issues and the depression could be quite severe and medication might be helpful in addition to psychotherapy. So, so uh, while there may be some circumstances where medication alone with, with maybe a minimal psychotherapy for them to understand the phenomena and other cases where the issue is really uh, uh, non-organic, non, uh, and will really need mostly or all psychotherapy. Yeah, because it's like when you have a narcissist come in, obviously that's a little complex because there's no empathy pill to give them. That's like, here, take this. And then go talk to people and see how they feel. Right. But, you know, yes, of course, what you're saying is true. But one of the interesting things about psychotherapy is that there there develops a relationship between the patient and the therapist. And in that relationship is often the, um, the issues that are problematic for the patient. So one may very well have the opportunity over time to look at that relationship, to to look at how the patient is treating the the therapist, how they're relating to the therapist. And frequently, 
the patient will care about the therapist and care about their relationship and therefore will be open to, to look at that. And that may very well help them understand their relationship with other people and make some progress uh, in the therapy. Oh, that's good. I know I've heard it from people and I'm obviously not a prescribing psychiatrist, but I know I've heard it just because, you know, in society, we talk so much more about depression and anxiety these days, at least. Do you hear it a lot that people are like, well, I'm afraid to take this medication because I, I think it's going to make me a zombie or like, I'm just going to, I'm not going to be myself anymore. Certainly one encourages the patient to express their concerns. And if, if like in regard to the, um, the, the zombie issue, if the medication has sedative effects, not all, not all medications have sedative effects, but if it does, uh, then one would be uh, alert to that. And one would, in, would tell the patient, well, we certainly will be aware. And um, if necessary, we'll adjust the dosage. And uh, sometimes it's difficult to determine to what degree the problem is uh, experiential that caused the depression and what, to what degree it's biological, inherited genetic. Often a clue is if other close family members have had depression and particularly if there have been suicide attempts and things like that, you know, there may very well be a biological component, genetic component, you know, in which case uh, the, uh, the medication is gonna be an important role it doesn't mean that therapy may is also going to be an important role, but in some situations, it's the biological factor is uh, has to be dealt with uh, very importantly. In other words, if somebody somebody has a strong family history of um, depression and they're having a serious depression, therapy alone may not be enough in that case. And is there like a system to work out? You know, if you said, oh, I don't have any depression symptoms right now, but what if both of my parents suffer from depression? Is there a high chance that at some point I'm going to suffer from a biological depression more than an experienced depression? Well, there's certainly more of a chance than if the parents did not have depression, but it's certainly not inevitable. And it's not inevitable that it's gonna be severe and it's not inevitable that they're gonna need medication. Interesting. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because it's, you know, not everything passes on genetically, but certainly at some point, some things do. Is it more common to see it with something like depression or is it more common if there was uh, perhaps a more severe psychiatric problem, like someone that had schizophrenia. Well, schizophrenia, you know, is is relatively easy to recognize and diagnose, and uh, whether or not there is a genetic relationship or not, it needs to be treated, and usually needs to be treated with medication. And we're fortunately in in our generation, we have medications that can be very helpful that didn't exist a hundred years ago. So that certainly is, is good. No. You know, if you, I, I know your 
kind of struggling or trying to look at the uh, when when is there going to be uh, some assurance or some confidence that it's uh, genetic. If you really want an example, let's take if there were identical twins. Identical twins have the exact same genetic makeup. Now, they may not have the exact same experiences. You know, we can have uh, identical twins separated at birth. You know, that would be a good experiment, wouldn't it? Yeah. Identical twins separated at birth, and one has severe depression and the other doesn't. Well, then we probably would begin to look at their family relationships and their psychodynamics. But there's all sorts of variations, and and one has to be open to look at all these things and try to be as helpful as you can. Yeah. I had a couple of listener questions. A lot of them boiled down to, does every psychiatrist get involved with like experiments on some level? Like, do you all do a study of some sort, or is it just certain people that get involved in wanting to run studies? Oh, certainly not all people. I, I think uh, many, many psychiatrists are in full-time practice. And then more likely the, the psychiatrists who are in the academic field may or may not be. You could be in the academic field and mainly be involved in teaching. You could be in the academic field and be involved in research or some combination thereof. It seems like we've heard I mean, at least in school, you hear every once in a while, like one experiment or another, I think it's generally a a psychology experiment that comes to my head because I think of like Pavlov and I'm pretty sure that's just a psychology thing and not a psychiatry thing, but it seems like, you know, we get to hear about them every once in a while. And then when some interesting study pops up, you get to hear like, oh, what happens when we, you know, give all these people this one thing and see what you know, what the result of this medication is, but that's most medications go through like a double blind study before they come out. Right. Right. That's true. I mean, that's, that's certainly uh, uh, a true factor and one that's not often talked about. Uh, Just recently I saw on television an ad sign up for uh, research in a new vaccine. And then they said, $1,500. In, in one sense, I know they have to do that, but it seemed unfair to, to draw in the people who really need the money to be subjects in the experiment. But I will say that before they do experiments on people, they've usually studied things fairly extensive, frequently on animals, which of course you can raise the question about, the, hey, that's not fair to animals. And most, by the time it's human research, it's fairly safe, but not obviously as safe as they as it could be. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing the, the research. Yeah, that's true. And it's a hard, I guess, topic to say this is bad. Because you could say, oh, all animal experimentation is bad. Yes, or it's also responsible for every modern medicine that we have today that saves countless lives. Mm-hmm. Like, so is the trade-off like, okay, you stop experimenting on animals. Do you just have to start dragging people in that, like you said, might be vulnerable to, I need the money. 
And then you give them much more dangerous medication instead of, you know, something that you have trial and error a bit. Well, now you're raising all sorts of ethical issues that uh, I'm sure we could discuss for hours. Yeah, of course. So I don't have a whole lot else for you. I really appreciate your time and just kind of dropping in to, to chat with the show. Is there anything you'd like to kind of a plug? I know, obviously, we've talked about your book a little bit, but anywhere else people could find you? Well, I'm, I'm located in Woodland Hills, California. And, uh, you know, writing this book has been a very interesting experience for me. In other words, I've written books before, but they were for the for the uh, professionals, they were for doctors and, and psychologists. And, and this was the first time I really sat down and, and really looked into the kind of issues that I thought people are really interested in. And uh, it's been a very interesting experience writing the book. I, I probably should have paid more attention to how you market a book, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't involved in that. But uh, my my uh, goal is, you know, to, to obviously have a successful book, but to try to share share my experiences with other people, and and therefore I'm recommending the book called Shrink Talk, and it's uh, available on Amazon. If you want more information about the book, you can go to shrinktalkbook.com. That has a lot of reviews from from some very interesting people and. Um, and you can get the book there it's a, you can, or get it on Kindle, whatever. So again, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated the opportunity to, to meet you and to, to meet your listeners. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And I'll be sure to let you know when this all goes up. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast, everybody. Remember to share this show with other people you know that might enjoy it, even if they only enjoy one episode out of the entire list we've done. Give it a review if you can. I've got some more episodes planned and coming down the pipes with a broader, more international guest registry, so I'm excited about that. Remember to email us at dumbenoughpodcast@gmail.com gmail.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or anything else on your mind. That's dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or you can just reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. I think this show is on everything, and I look at all of those as much as I can. Lastly, we've got the rankings. If you want to hear more of the mega list I just did, listen to the previous episode, What is Art? And I cover the first six months of this show's audience. Otherwise, this month's so far is number one. The United States with Oklahoma as the top state. Congratulations on that, Oklahoma, and thank you for listening. Number two is the United Kingdom. Three is Canada. Four is France. And in its first appearance on the leaderboard, number five, Mexico. I'm planning to try and put some more time into this so I can do some two-a-week episode releases for a little bit. But that's all I've got this week. I'll see you next time. Bye bye